0: Good morning. Um, we are going to start with Jonah chapter four, if you'd like to turn there with me this morning. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, In which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together and we'll we'll jump into the book of Jonah. Uh, Father God, we thank you for your word, uh, particularly uh, the book of Jonah. God, we ask that your spirit would work powerfully through the life of Jonah. God, that we would see your relentless love and mercy. God, that we would be moved to examine our hearts and convicted of of sin. And that we, we would be encouraged just by your unwavering faithfulness even when we are faithless. God, move powerfully in our midst and make us people after your own heart. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we talked a little bit about hero stories last week, and that got me thinking this week about movies. And my guess is that if you have a refined, artistic movie palette, you probably like this last chapter of Jonah. This post-epic repentance temper tantrum, the end leaving you with more questions than answers, but then also making you kind of introspective about your own life. This last chapter is oddly and frustratingly realistic. But if I'm being honest, I don't watch movies because I want a taste of real life. I just, I don't. That is not entertaining to me at all because I taste real life every day. I taste it all the time. If I'm going to spend two hours sitting in front, of, uh, in front of a television, I want the hero to win. I want all the loose ends tied up. I don't want real life. I, I watch movies to get a reprieve from real life. But that's just me. I applaud those of you who, who can muscle through depressing movies that leave you with more questions than answers i know some of you that's super cool and if that is you as i said this fourth chapter of jonah is right in your wheelhouse like this is the one for you and so we ended chapter three with this glorious repentance of the ninevites and god relenting from disaster and then chapter four verse one but it displeased jonah exceedingly and he was angry it's a great start right And before we dive into this discourse between Jonah and God, I really want to throw Jonah a bone a little bit. I want to talk about the history of Nineveh just to give some context for Jonah's reaction. The history of Nineveh is really a long string of violence and rebellion against God. Back in in Genesis, we read about a man named Nimrod, right? You can laugh. His name was Nimrod. He was the great-grandson of Noah, and, and Scripture called him the first on earth to be a mighty man, called him a mighty hunter before the Lord. So you almost, you hear that, you're like, oh, what's that name? I want to call my kid, oh, Nimrod, mighty hunter before the Lord, right? It doesn't work. But we're not really given a, a lot of details about his rise to power But we know that he was kind of this larger-than-life character. He was a driven man, a successful man. And history points to Nimrod as being the founder of the city of Babel. And he was the architect of the Tower of Babel, right? So he's leading the charge, like, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make a tower into the heavens, And after God confused the languages of the people of Babel, we read in Genesis chapter 10 that that Nimrod went forth into Assyria and he built Nineveh. And as you might guess, Nimrod, I can't even say it without laughing inside my head, he didn't settle for just building another city. He was driven to have the greatest city. And Nineveh became the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And during the the 14 centuries between the time of Nimrod and the time of Jonah, there was perpetual fighting and oppression by the Assyrians. The, The entire history of this empire is filled with a reign of violence and terror and torture and killing conquered people. But they wouldn't just overthrow neighboring countries. They would carry home body parts of people in the heads of conquered kings they would put in their royal banquets and they would torture the generals of opposing nations they were horrible there seemed to be no end or no act of cruelty that these conquerors would not employ so they were a brutal and violent nation and it should be no surprise that jonah was not excited about god's call to go to nineveh but The book of Jonah is about miraculous and surprising events. The prophet of God runs from God. Rather than drowning in the Mediterranean Sea, he's saved by a giant fish. And when Jonah finally agrees to follow God, to preach to his enemies, we might expect some of them, maybe a few of them, to believe, to repent, but God brings widespread transformation. 14 centuries of tyranny transformed in an instant mass repentance through the grace of God and I say it's in an instant God was obviously at work in the hearts of the Ninevites preparing them for Jonah to come but there's this moment of transformation and then we get to Jonah in chapter 4 His preaching just brought the largest mass revival in world history, but instead of being overjoyed by the miracle of God's mercy, Jonah throws one of the biggest temper tantrums the world has ever seen. So we get back to verse 1. Jonah witnesses the repentance of Nineveh. God relents, and Jonah is greatly displeased. He's angry. And the Hebrew word here literally means he's burning with anger. So he's not just mad. He is steaming angry. And Jonah goes on in verse 2 to help God out, which is just beautiful, by explaining his his seemingly odd reaction. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, just in case you didn't fully understand why I ran in the first place, God, let me be really clear. I ran because I knew that you were gracious and merciful. That's awesome. And how did Jonah know this about God? Well, it's exactly how God describes himself to Moses on Mount Sinai before making the covenant with him. Jonah quotes how God describes himself and then he gets angry because God was faithful to his word. He acted exactly how he said he would act and that angered Jonah. God didn't throw Jonah some curveball by relenting from disaster. He did exactly as he promised. In Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8, God says, if at any time, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do. See, Jonah knew all along that the plan for Nineveh was mercy. But deep down in his heart, he had been holding out hope that they wouldn't repent. That they would be destroyed by God for their evil ways. Even after Jonah's miraculous experience of God's salvation and mercy, the, the deep seated darkness of his heart was surfacing in an ugly way. Jonah just didn't want them to receive mercy. In Jonah's estimation, he saw himself as a better judge of what is just and what is unjust than God himself. And if Jonah were God, Nineveh would be destroyed. And because of this, Jonah continues in this temper tantrum. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's as though Jonah is back on the boat. When he saw death as his only option, He was consumed by emotion and blind to the truth of God. After experiencing God's grace in the stormy sea, Jonah, he had submitted his actions to God. He had preached to Nineveh, but he still had not fully submitted his heart. As we talked about last week, God uses foolish sinners to accomplish great things for his kingdom. When when God saves us and calls us, we are still sinners. And in in the midst of serving God, even faithfully, we still struggle with sin. The the illusion that that pastors or, or missionaries or everyday believers who seem so faithful, this idea that they have their entire spiritual house perfectly in order could not be further from the truth. And if they say they do or they act like they do, they are fooling themselves. The very act of being used by God places us in uncomfortable positions. It stretches us. It challenges our faith. Because if it were easy and comfortable, then we could rely on our own strength. But as we talked about last week, everything about God's kingdom is divergent from the kingdom of this world. So when we pursue God's kingdom, there will be struggles there will be doubts, there will be fears as we bump up against a culture that thinks we're crazy for following Jesus at all. The amazing work of God calls us into the world. It's, a, it's, it's as much about shaping our hearts through faithfulness. It's about transforming the lives of those we serve but it's also about transforming our lives as we serve. I mean, if you've ever been on a mission trip or we have people going to Africa very soon, we always go with this plan of what we're going to do and how we're going to serve and how it's going to change their lives. But I can assure you, you get back and you are the one that is transformed. You may have done some awesome things. You may have impacted some people, but it changes you. Because faithfulness is often how God grows us and shapes us and challenges us. Obedient service is not the product of someone's life who has arrived at perfect holiness. Obedience is a tool of sanctification. We are being made holy through the process of following God's call. Jonah had been used to bring salvation to one of the most violent and brutal cities in the world, but the Ninevites were not the only people whose hearts this mission was intended to soften. Jonah was the perfect man for the job because God had a plan to soften Jonah's heart as well as the hearts of the Ninevites. Jonah had followed God's command, but he was still a racist self-righteous judgmental prophet he was fully on board with experiencing god's grace in his own life but he couldn't stand to see that same grace and mercy being shown to his enemies he's fuming with anger and asking to die but god shows him mercy once again God doesn't give him what he asks for, but rather he begins this divine counseling session with Jonah. He says, Do you do well to be angry? And I love that question. God could have said a number of things, right? He could have come down like Job style, like, Who are you, O man, to darken my presence with words without wisdom? He could have come hard. You have no right to be angry. Why are you not rejoicing? But he didn't. Instead, he asks the self-consumed prophet a question about himself. It's beautiful. How's this going for you, Jonah? Is this temper tantrum producing your desired result? Is this good for you? Is this bringing about the fruit of peace in your life? Do you do well to be angry? It's such a loving question from God. And I don't know, I won't ask for a raise of hand if you're prone to anger. That might make you angry. Or maybe you know someone. Doug, angry Doug, I knew it. But you know, in fits of anger, rational thinking often vacates the premises, right? When the fire gets burning pretty hot, There's not a a lot of rationale. And if you really want to stir the pot in the midst of their anger, you ask them to examine their own heart. To look at the real source of that anger. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? I'm acting with the same grace and mercy that you and your people Israel have always known. So maybe it's your heart that we should be examining, not my actions, Jonah. Aside from the rare instances of righteous anger, when we're angry, it's because somebody has poked at an idol or some situation has poked at an idol or, or a God in our lives. Our pride, our success, our status or, or our self-constructed identity It's like stirring up a hornet's nest and watching all the little flying devils burst into action. The angry response, the fits of rage, the sharp insults. Having trouble getting words out. I get excited. I've talked too much the last few days. Uh, The defensive barriers that we've set up in our lives to guard these little idols of our hearts. This is where Jonah's at. His idols are being challenged, and he's lashing out. He's having a temper tantrum. God, however, does not waver in the midst of Jonah's anger. God doesn't defend his actions to Jonah, but but directs Jonah to his own heart. Do you really have any reason to be angry? And this sends Jonah like level five rage. This is the danger zone. Like the top is about to come off. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because you know you've really done it when the angry person stops talking, right? That's like that second before the nuclear bomb goes off. Like they just, they go dead silent. See, Jonah doesn't even respond to God's question. He's so worked up, he just packs up and leaves. He went to the east side of the city, he built a little booth, a little shelter, and he sits in the desert to wait and see what happens. And it's interesting that Jonah went and sat on the east side of the city because you may remember from Genesis when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, they were sent to the east. And Cain, after killing his brother and being cursed by God, went away from the presence of the Lord. He settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now... Jonah was leaving the city of Nineveh, the place where God was working his wondrous mercy and he sat in the solitude of the desert east of God's grace. Right? Was there nowhere for Jonah to stay in the city? Would the people of Nineveh not have shown Jonah like grace and and praised him and blessed him as the messenger of salvation for the city? They had to be feasting and celebrating their salvation. But Jonah was alone in the desert, sulking. He sits by himself, steaming with anger, likely hearing the shouts of joy and praise coming from the city, and he's holding on hope that maybe God will change his mind. Just maybe he will rain down fire and brimstone and kill all these people. It's horrible. So God decided to continue his divine counseling session with a a life parable in verses 6 through 11. God appoints this plant to grow up over Jonah, to give him shade over his large head, to save him from his discomfort, and Jonah was exceedingly glad for this plant. Ironic, right? He was exceedingly displeased at the salvation of an entire city But he's exceedingly happy about shade over his own head because now God was serving his needs, his desires. That makes Jonah very happy. But the next morning, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and the plant withers. Then, as the sun rose in the desert, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun was beating down on Jonah's head to where Jonah gets back to where he was. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah seems like a lot to deal with. Just be honest. God could do it, but I don't know that I could handle that. Then God questions him again. Do you, well, do, you do well to be angry for the plant? And you've got to love it. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. My God is super patient. Jonah obviously wasn't catching on, so God responds. He says, you pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being at night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And there's a bunch of cows. That's I don't know, there's cows there too. I don't know, it's weird. They only had cows in Nineveh, and they really loved them. And this is the end of the book, right? And there were cows. Go be introspective on that. God's like, Jonah, you're a selfish man. You loved this plant, which you had nothing to do with. You didn't tend it or groom it or feed it, but you loved it because it benefited you. I created this plant, and I will determine whether this plant lives or dies. You can't see past yourself and your own pride to see the miracle I am working in Nineveh, a city I've known for 1,400 years. They've walked in darkness, slaves to sin, unable to to distinguish between right and wrong. But I have opened their eyes. They've tasted the joy of salvation and sing praises to the one and only true God for the first time in history. There's only one blind fool left in Nineveh right now, Jonah, and that is you. So you tell me, Jonah, should I not pity this city? See, in Jonah's anger and pride, he had deemed himself judge as if righteousness and justice rested in his hands rather than God's. He may have lived a really religious life, but his heart was still dark. It was full of pride and anger and selfishness. And so what we learn from Jonah here in chapter 4 is that it is possible to be faithful to God in our actions while harboring sin in our hearts. Jonah did exactly what God said. But his heart was still crippled by self-consumption, by arrogance, by a lack of compassion. But I think that we kind of get where Jonah's coming from here, right? We we all love to experience the grace of God in our lives. But when it comes to the lives of others, there, there are times where we really prefer to see justice right we want justice I, i'm i'm horrible about about this i love seeing people pulled over by the cops i'll just be honest it's a weird thing like when someone zooms by and i see those lights i'm like thank you jesus but if i'm like in a hurry somewhere and i see a cop it's like oh lord no you know not me i'm a righteous man but like if i see you get pulled over i'm probably like "Woo, you know cheering and then i'm like oh sorry matt i yeah so, so yeah, so a little Jonah-esque there, just a little bit. But God is, He's calling us through Jonah to look inside of our own lives, like past our actions to the motivations of our heart. If we only love God's grace in our own lives and not in the lives of others, if we only love God's forgiveness for us, but we withhold it from others, then we don't actually love God. God we just love what God does for us which really means that we just love ourselves and that's the American way right the solution to our heart problem is not a a, a few aspirin a day it is a heart transplant God is calling us through the story of Jonah to see the world as he sees it to love people as he loves them, and to find our greatest joy in him and his plan of redemption in the world. The message of chapter 4 is not, will you submit your life to God, but will you submit your heart to God? God is persistent in grace towards Jonah, even though Jonah can't see it. God desires that Jonah would taste the joy of intimate fellowship with him and experience the love that moves hearts to compassion. And God desires the same for us, that we would let go of our idols and our pride, the false treasures that lead us into fits of anger and selfishness stop putting our hope in our abilities or our status or our accomplishments or our bank accounts to find our greatest joy in him and his plan of redemption. He wants us to taste and see that he is good, that he is gracious and abounding in mercy. Jonah was so consumed by the Ninevite sin that he couldn't see the disgusting sin in his own heart. He was blind. And if we lose sight of our own sinfulness in our service to God, we can quickly become puffed up with judgment and pride. Jonah was still wiping the seaweed from his body after fleeing from God and being eaten by a whale. Yet he still looks down on the Ninevites with prideful arrogance. It's so easy to move out onto the mission field of life to work and to serve and to do ministry with a prideful heart as if those who we are serving are a project as if their situation or their sin makes them less righteous than us maybe they live in a trailer maybe they have a refrigerator in their front yard maybe they can't keep a job Or maybe they're not even trying to get one. Aren't I great for giving my one hour a month to help the poor, to help the needy at the mission or the shelter or the clinic? Or maybe they wear turbans, right? Thin eyes here. Maybe some of them hate the U.S. Maybe some of them have bombed and terrorized our great nation. They're not civilized like we are. The world would be a better place if God would just wipe them off the map. Nineveh was a terrorist nation. They were brutal and they were violent. But they were made in the image of God. God knew them. And God sought to show them compassion. Should I not pity this great nation who is blind to their own sinfulness? So, here's the crazy thing. Uh, Where the city of Nineveh was located is now a place called Mosul, Iraq. You know that? It's Iraq. It's a city in the Middle East where God once brought repentance and life to an entire city. Miraculous transformation in the Middle East. Do you believe that he can do that again? Do you pray for the repentance of Iraq or Afghanistan or the Islamic people? Does their sin move us to repentance for our own sin or does it puff us up with righteousness and judgment about theirs? Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. And the, the Greek word for all there means all. So, it's like everybody. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. And the Greek for gift means something that you're given, right? It's a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, our only hope for salvation rests in Christ's redemptive work in our lives. This is the same for Porter and for Russia and for the Middle East? Can you imagine if God worked his glorious redemption once again in the city of Nineveh? In in Mosul? If, if that day comes, will we be dancing in the streets with them? Or will we be steaming with anger and judgment like Jonah? Sulking for them receiving grace that they don't deserve. I would really love to think that Christians around the globe would be overjoyed by God's redemptive work in the Middle East. But I fear that the truth is that Nineveh-like transformation would reveal the sinful hearts of many professing Christians even more than 2020 did. Just like it did with Jonah. Jonah. In a culture where mainstream Christianity often seems far more interested in pointing fingers in judgment than grace and mercy, Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 41 to the religious leaders of his generation are eerily prophetic. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day were experts at religion, and they were experts at judging others. But they were void of grace. They knew a lot about God, but they did not know God. They did not understand his grace and his forgiveness and his love. The question we're left with from the book of Jonah is, do we love people like God loves people? Are we blind to our own sin while sitting in judgment over other people's? Do we long for grace and compassion to transform the hearts of our enemies? As we read in Colossians three ten and 11, in God's family... There is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Global church, Christ is all and in all. Through Jesus, we have been given a new heart, a heart that beats for the redemptive work of God in this world the God who sent Jesus Christ to die so that we might have life is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he is calling us to have the same heart, to be gracious and merciful, to proclaim the glory of God to our neighbors, to pray for the repentance of the nations, and to celebrate the salvation of our enemies. If we're going to proclaim the gospel to this community and this world, we must pray that God would expand our hearts so that we can see people as he sees people, that he would expose the deep-rooted sin in our lives and lead us to repentance. My prayer is that we would be a community whose hearts are shaped through obedient service for the glory of God, knowing that we are imperfect vessels being made holy through the sanctifying work of Jesus in our lives. Let's pray together. Father God, that is our prayer. God, that your heart would be our heart. that through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, that you would chip away at the pride and the judgment, at the deep-rooted sin in our flesh, and make us a people who see the depths of your mercy. Understand the mercy that you've extended to us and a people who long and pray for others to experience that same mercy. God, make us a people who pray that the nations would know you, who pray for repentance and rejoice with you when it comes, to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.